was a man that is very, very important in my life and in Christy's life. He's actually the man who hired us here 14 years ago. So had it not been for him, uh, we wouldn't be here. And so uh, we're very, very grateful for that. And in August of 2004, Christy and I moved out here, uh, precipitated by an invitation from Chris Jackson, who was the executive pastor of this church uh, 14 years ago. At that time, our name was Springs Harvest Fellowship. And then we changed the name to Freedom Church. And then five years ago, we changed the name to Antioch. Stick around. You never know what we're going to name ourselves in a few years. Now, I think this name is going to stick. I really do. I, 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 feel, I feel really good about this name here. But uh, Chris Jackson came and he shared with the men uh, this weekend, and he's going to share with us today. And uh, Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for who you are. I, I forgot how deep and how broad of a well you are, and just right on target with what the Spirit of God is doing in this fellowship, and I have no doubt that what you come to bring today is going to be right on for all of us. How many of you were here when Chris Jackson was a part of Springs Harvest? And look at that. Wow, that is awesome. All right, well then help me welcome our friend and our pastor, Chris Jackson. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, it's so good to see you guys this morning. Good morning and welcome to the first Sunday of autumn, 2018. So it's a new season this morning. And I want to greet all of you from Grace Church of Laverne, California. Uh, they're having their worship service right now as we're worshiping. And I especially want to greet you from my wife, Jessica. I was on the phone with her last night, and she said, make sure you tell everyone that we knew that I still love them and miss them. And so Jessica loves you, and I love you too. And uh, you're an easy church to love. Uh, guys, those of you that were up at the retreat, you are awesome. What a strong group of men. And I already feel just a bond and an affinity with you. And I'm sure it'd be the same with all the guys that weren't there, and I'm sure it'd be the same with all of you ladies. And let me actually show you a quick picture of my family. Sometimes people like to know the the backstory or the family, but they're the girlfriends. They were, the girls were young when we moved, so it's been 11 years since I was here. So Jessica's in the middle, and Amber on the left is 19, and Maddie or Madeline on the right is 16. And I was on the phone last night talking to Jessica, and she said, Maddie and I are having the best weekend. Uh, it's homecoming next weekend. And she goes, babe, we, we're having the best weekend. And just so you know, when you come home, Maddie is so excited for homecoming. So just don't worry about anything. <laughs> and so I think that that was code for we've been shopping. <laughs> and don't freak out when you see the checkbook. Trish, do you think that might be what, Trish is a good friend of my wife. And she probably knows that's what she's saying. But, um, oh gosh, we, we um, adore Jade and Christy. Um, Jessica and I met them. We adore Martha and Todd and Carmen Swank are some of our best friends. And I was thinking back on when I first met the Duncans, uh, Todd and Carmen introduced us to them and we didn't really know you. You were just this beautiful, fun, young, newlywed couple. And we had a house on Slick Rock by Dublin and Powers. And the Swanks asked if the Duncans could stay in our house. We were going out of town for the weekend and we said, yeah, sure, no problem. And we go away for the weekend. We come back and we get into our kitchen, and on our kitchen table, there's a check for $25 and a little note that says, thank you for letting us stay here. Sorry about your candle. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm snooping around the house, and there's this massive hot wax smear all across the, the floor of our living room. 
And I couldn't figure out what was our candle doing on the floor and how did it get kicked over? And I, I don't know, my, I think my mind is just too pure to imagine how that happened, but, um, <laughs> but um, I do have other memories about the Duncans. Um, when I was part of that team that flew to Tulsa to interview them, uh, I, I remember I watched Jade preach to the high school group, and there were maybe eight, nine kids in the room, and he got up there and he taught them and he preached with as much passion and excellence and focus and love and intentionality as I've seen him do in front of you and in front of crowds of hundreds and hundreds of people. And I was absolutely captured. And I thought, my goodness, he's preaching like he's in a stadium and connecting with these kids like they're the most important people in the world. And that's been you consistently for um, every day that I've met you. So I'm just so proud of you. Um, Listen, I know I'm an outsider, but your church is doing well. I know there's been some difficult times and I know you've weathered some storms. The theology, so can I just have a quick in-house moment? If you're visiting, this won't make maybe a whole lot of sense, but um, the theology and the direction of your church is right. It's rock solid and the direction you're moving is, is strong and clean and accurate and it's powerful. And I really do think you've turned a corner and I really do think it's not just um, first Sunday of autumn, but I think it is a new day and a, a new beginning. I love your staff. Um, any church would be lucky to have the staff that you have here. And, and so if you're all looking to move to California, I could, um, I'll, I'll probably never get invited back here, but, um, but I'll take you. So when you're a guest speaker, you kind of feel a little bit of a pressure to either say something memorable or be profound or give a word that's kind of a, uh, we also adore you, Caitlin, so much. And I cannot wait to see you hopefully later this, this evening. Joe, can she skip your event and join us later this evening? So no pressure, but the whole church is listening. But, um, but when you're a guest speaker, you kind of want to either bring a word or something that really, uh, you know, strengthens the church or helps the church. But as I was thinking and praying, I really have something very simple I want to share. And I, I want to encourage you. And I want to just share something with you today that um, might be kind of a personal thing in your life and will hopefully just minister to you as people. So open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. In the community where I live, uh, one of our neighboring churches has just gone through a pretty massive tragedy the pastor of this church, and it's a really large church, it would be in the mega church category, this pastor's 30 years old, has a beautiful 29-year-old wife, they have three boys under five years old, and in this church is maybe a few miles from my congregation, but this pastor battled depression and anxiety and took his life a few weeks ago. And some of you may have heard about this, it's made some big headlines and so many people have rallied around to support them and just shook the community. And um, the young wife, Kayla, she's been posting every day and Jessica's following everything that she's posting. And, and people are being amazing and they're being supportive, but it's been, it's been so hard to understand. Jess and I watched his last couple of sermons before he took his life and you would never know. He's like Jade. He's engaging and dynamic and funny. And, and we watched this and thought, my goodness, how does that happen? And it's so easy when you're on the outside of a situation to judge the inside. It's so easy to think, my gosh, how, why don't you get help? Or, 
or how selfish. It's so easy to think those things, but sometimes it might be more helpful to think, oh my gosh, how much pain would a person have to be in to feel that with all of that that they have to live for, that there was no way out? How do you, how do you get to that kind of a place? And, and what I'd like for us to do for just a few minutes today is I want us to talk about one of the biblical responses to anxiety and worry. Now, I just want to talk about one response because there are more than this one response. Um, at my church back home, we have a term that we use to describe the kind of church that we are. We, we call ourselves a Gatling gun church. Anybody know what a Gatling gun is? I have a picture of it for you. A Gatlin gun was like the, the first generation machine gun. And so before they had the automatic you know, weaponry mechanisms, they, they, they created these weapons where there were multiple barrels and you would fire one barrel and then it would rotate. And then the other barrel would discharge and it would rotate. And we call ourselves a Gatlin gun church. And what that means is that when something comes up in our life that demands attention or ministry, we shoot in all directions. We don't just pray. Now, we do pray, but we don't just pray. We don't just talk to a pastor. We talk to counselors and therapists. And we don't just get personal ministry. We also take a nap. And sometimes in churches, maybe even like, are you tired? It's only, <laughs> you are a young mom, so you probably are. Um, we, there are times in our lives when, when, yes, we need super spiritual stuff, but especially in a church like this where there's a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit and God being present and close, the tendency could be that that's always the go-to, and it should be the go-to, but sometimes you need to exercise, and sometimes you need therapy, and sometimes you need medication, and, and we believe the scripture tells us God is the God of all comfort. He's the source of all healing, so whether it comes from medication or a doctor or a chiropractor or intercessory prayer, he gets the credit for it, and we can thank him for it. And so I just want to focus on one biblical response to anxiety. Anxiety is crushing. Now, we all feel anxiety to a level, but when you have an anxiety disorder, it is disorienting. Um, Jessica and I were having dinner a couple of weeks ago with some very close friends. Um, she's a superintendent of a school district, and he's a brilliant psychiatrist. He's a medical director of a psychiatric hospital. And he was sharing with us that suicides in America have risen by 25% since 1999. And he was telling us that it's almost impossible to understand anxiety if you don't have it. Now, again, we all feel anxious, but it's almost impossible to understand it. He said, imagine the most intense examination or interview you've ever had. The, the interview that your whole job career hangs on or your final exams in school and, and then multiply that by 10 times and then feel it 24-7 and you can't escape it. So it's not just an issue of, of, don't you realize that there's help out there? It's how can I get out from under this crushing burden and since anxiety even at a low level can be so debilitating and so crushing and by the way quick pause I do think maybe this is a bit of a, a word of sorts for your church because one thing that's so clear about Antioch is there's a there's an ethos of of rescue here we talked at the men's retreat that at its core Christianity is a rescue mission and when we 
respond to Jesus. And when he says, follow me, what he's saying is, listen, I'm leading the greatest search and rescue mission in the history of humanity. And I want you to join me. And if you're rescuing people, you're gonna have swarms of people in here who are battling depression and anxiety and eating disorders and self-harm issues and all kinds of stuff. And so we need to talk about it and be ready to process. But even at a low level, anxiety can be so crushing that Jesus said, in Matthew 6, 25, he said, do not be anxious about your life. In Philippians 4, 6, the apostle Paul said, do not be anxious about anything. And then in 1 Peter 5, 6, and if you're there, the apostle Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith because you know that the believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. How often in your life do you feel out of control? I don't mean like a freaking out, I can't handle it. I just mean even at a low level. How often do you feel out of control? Any control freaks in the room? Do you ever think about let's just raise the anxiety level for a second. Let's think about all of the things that we can't control. Can you control your health? Now, I realize that some people, are you 18 and you said yes? Or Dan Anderson and you said yes. Can you do a backflip? Can you still walk on your hands? We raced each other across the sanctuary walking on our hands. Can you do it right now? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to right now, but can you? Just real, real quick. Is that unholy? Tuck your shirt in. Dan, Dan, Dan. <laughs> now, if... if if you get hurt, this would be the wrong time to get hurt. As I get home tonight, I'm going to see if I can still do that, <laughs> but not in front of all of you. Um, but listen, even if you say, yeah, I can control my health because I diet and I exercise and I'm, I'm conscientious and now I'm doing paleo and now I'm doing that, uh, th that's all well and good until the celebrity fitness trainer keels over at 50 from a heart attack in the gym. Or, or, or how about your finances? Can you control your finances? And, and there are people 
who in my church who might say yes, because in our church, we do Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. And so we have an emergency fund and we're, we're figuring out how to retire our debt and, and that's good. And if you follow Dave's stuff, you will have a better financial future. But isn't his whole premise built on a functioning stock market? Can you control the stock market? No. In fact, um, it seems like even when you have a lot of money, uh, you really can't control it. I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, it says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. And that doesn't make sense to me because it seems like the more you have, the less anxious you would be. And yet, according to the wisest person who lived, the more you have, the less control you have. Uh, how about if you're in high school? Can you control how much money the college will offer you in your financial aid package? I mean, you can write a killer letter. You can have a good resume, but you're not actually in control of that. And when you graduate, can you control the job market? If you're successful, can you control well, how successful? Maybe you're super talented. Does that mean you can control if you get a book deal or a, a record label or drafted into the NBA? Or how about relationships? You know, I cannot control whether or not a free-willed individual will love me. I can make myself lovable. I can make myself easier to love, I can serve, I can position myself, but at the end of the day, I have no control over the heart of another human being. And if I can't control my health and my finances and my success and my relationships, it leaves me feeling very uncertain. It leaves me feeling uncertain in the areas of my life that are the most important in my life, and uncertainty is the foundation of anxiety. God, what am I going to do for work? How am I going to make this happen? How do I make ends meet? How are we going to get through this? I'm uncertain. Now, generally speaking, um, anxiety is a feeling of worry or nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent event or about something that's uncertain. Um, we feel anxiety about a meeting because we don't know the outcome. We feel anxiety about confrontation because this thing might go South, in psychiatric terms, an anxiety disorder is when those feelings reach the point of neurosis and they take control and we can't shake it. In fact, anxiety is being called a modern-day plague. Y'all remember our history lesson from the 1400s? Remember the bubonic plague? Swept through Africa, Asia, uh, Europe, killed millions of people. Psychology Today magazine is calling anxiety a modern-day plague. We're all affected by it. And it's increasing along with the increase of technology. Isn't this crazy? Wouldn't you think that with more technological explosions and better scientific discoveries and better health aids, we would be less anxious, but we're actually more. Anxiety is exponentially increasing um, in our world today. And there are a few reasons for it. First of all, we're already talking about it. It's our lack of control. But second of all, we are more anxious today because of the endless flow of information. I didn't grow up with the World Wide Web in my pocket, but it's there now. And so when a crisis happens in Australia, my phone tells me about it within minutes. So I'm not only carrying my personal anxiety, which can be debilitating, I'm carrying the anxiety of the world. And we humans weren't meant to carry that much. The other thing is that the pace of our world tends towards stimulation. 
The pace of life tends to wind us up and make us move faster. Nothing in life today, unless we push back, asks us to slow down. In fact, do any of you watch This Is Us? Incredible show. But we were watching it. Jessica and I fell in love with it. We love, we love all the characters. But we were so enjoying the show that we, we told the girls, girls, you got to watch this with us. So we watched this episode of This Is Us. It was so good. And as soon as it was over, they were like, that was awesome. Let's go to the next one. And we're like, no, well, wait a minute. This, this is like a TV show. You, you watch it tonight, and then a week later, it will be back on. And they're like, wait a minute, there's not like a whole season that we can just binge? We like this, let's just binge it. And, and, and I grew up when Magnum P.I., you actually had to wait. Did, did you know they're doing a Magnum P.I. reboot? I'm such a Tom Selleck fan, but I'm going to have to try it. But, but, but the pace of our life is such that, that doctors are telling us. The pace of our life is actually rewiring our brains and our bodies, and it's causing us to to ramp up just automatically. And so isn't it interesting that thousands of years ago, God implemented some things with his people that were anxiety blockers? Isn't it fascinating that thousands of years ago, he gave a command to take a Sabbath, maybe even a Sabbath month, like you just did in July, to, to take time to withdraw and shut down and recalibrate and regroup. Um, if we're going to understand anxiety, and we'll get to our text here in just a second, you have to understand anxiety's twin sister, which is worry. And I want to show you the definition of worry. I'll actually show it to you through a picture versus a, a word. This is the literal technical definition of worry. It's right here. <laughs> the word worry... If you look it up in an English dictionary, the word means to strangle. And it comes from an old English word that means to choke, strangle, or shake. And, and so the way they describe it in dictionaries is they, they, if you saw it in a sentence, it might say, the dog was in the corner contentedly worrying a bone. And so when a dog clamps down on the bone, and have you seen that? And they, they go back and forth and they're, they're shaking that thing. That's the literal technical definition of worry. So when worry is unchecked in our lives, when anxiety is unchecked, it's like we're gripped by the throat and we're being shaken back and forth. And we lose our perspective and when we get off balance and we're dizzy and it's about to take us off. And God tells us, don't let that rule your life. Don't let that become the oxygen you breathe and the ethos that you, that you live in. Um, becoming a Christian does not automatically take these things away. There are people who meet Jesus and their lives are so transformed that you, you would never recognize them. But for a lot of us, what, what Christianity does is it opens the door. Positionally, we're free and we're clean and we're right with God, but it opens the door to freedom and deliverance. And so we have to learn how to push back on these things. And so um, in 1 Peter 5, again, we'll look a little bit at how to do that. Um, One more time, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, says, Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind, for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So a couple of simple observations from this text. There is someone strong enough to handle your future. 
and to handle your concern and to seize control, but it's not you. Um, To God, the text ends, not you, not me. To God, it says, be the power and the glory forever and ever. Anybody who's ever been associated with a 12-step recovery program knows that your freedom is dependent on the power from an outside source. God is strong enough to take control, but we're not. And so when we're not in control, um, we have to deal with anxiety. And so how do we do it? According to the Apostle Peter, there's, there's two options. Number one, we can carry it. Or number two, we can cast it. And, and, I, and the preferred method, according to Peter, is to cast our anxieties. And the reason that he's connecting this with your enemy, the devil, who prowls like a roaring lion, is because uncast cares become a landing strip for demonic activity. Cares that are carried and uncast become an open door for the enemy to ravage our lives. He devours the one who's being strangled by worry, who's being strangled by anxiety. You and I have an enemy. You realize that, right? Now, now, now we're not weird, flaky, super spiritual people that think every bad thing that happens is the devil. We're humans. Our world is broken. I can make a bad choice. It doesn't mean it was the devil, but we have an enemy. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created, but then went wrong. Christianity agrees that this is a universe at war. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is, and Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say has landed in disguise, and is calling us now to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. In Acts 10.38, it says, Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Again, not every weird thing that happens is spiritual warfare, but there is spiritual warfare, and it looks for a landing strip. And Peter says that uncast cares become the landing strip. So just just think back to those times when you're gripped with worry. Satan is described by Jesus as a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When you're gripped by worry, your, your joy is stolen. Your peace is stolen. Your perspective is stolen. Everything is skewed. And and, and it it can just ruin you. Here's another way to think about anxiety. The technical Greek word for anxiety in this passage is a word that means to fracture and divide. It means to take a hole and put enough pressure on it that it splits and then separates from its core. And so when we're anxious, we become fractured and separated and scattered. And, and instead of having a peaceful, unified core, we're just all over the place. We're a fractured, fragmented mess. And that's vulnerable. Because when you're in that place, you are not strong enough to resist the whisper of the adversary. You're not strong enough to, to say, no, that's not reality. There's a greater reality. When we're in that place, we're just vulnerable and it just soaks right into our soul and it starts to permeate us. And so what do we do? Well, I told you it's a simple message. It's a simple strategy, simple but incredibly difficult. We we can carry our cares or we can cast them. Verse seven, he says, cast. That means throw. 
offload, heave, shot put, do whatever you have to do to get this off of you. Cast your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, this is awesome. Um, I'm reading out of the NIV, and it says, cast your anxieties. Back in the old King James Version days, the text actually says, cast all of your cares on him, for he cares for you. That actually makes a little more sense, because we're only anxious about the things that we care about. I care about a lot of people, but I don't feel anxious about someone unless I really care about them. But he says, you can cast your cares on me because you are my care. He cares for you. And, and the, the reason that we, we don't feel like he cares for us when we're anxious is this. When we are living in an anxiety-ridden, fear-motivated future, God is not in that future. Anxiety takes us into a fantasy world where we're imagining worst case scenarios and God is not fantasy, God is reality. And so the reason that anxiety can destroy us is it takes us to a place that's beyond God's ability to reach us. God can't reach us in a fantasy because a fantasy doesn't exist. He, he's not there. If, if your worst case scenario happens, God will meet you there. If your fearful future happens, he'll meet you because the future will be the present and his name is I am, present tense. Whatever comes into your life, he will meet you in that place. But if you live in a fear-induced future that's not even real, that's not even anything real to deal with. And so anxiety and fear and worry, it's common to mankind, but it takes us out of the grip of God's grace. I don't know who said it, um, if you ever, ever want to find an author for a famous quote, you can either say it's Winston Churchill or it's Mark Twain or Benjamin Franklin or Jay Duncan maybe. But, but um, did you say this, that I'm an old man? You know, you didn't say that, but I think, it was, I think it was Mark Twain said, I'm an old man and I've known a lot of troubles and some of them even happened. You know, at, at the end of our life, we're going to have lived a lot of troubles and listen, some of your troubles will happen. Some of your fears will come true. Not all of them. Not even the majority of them. A couple of them will. And when they do, he'll meet you in that place because it will be the present and he's the great I am. But, but at the end of your life, I think you might say, gosh, you know, most of my troubles never happened. I sure wish I had spent more time living instead of worrying. So how do we do this? It's easy to beat up on worry and we can all relate, but how do we do it? Um, the, the key to, to living, the key to staying in a place of confidence is to become an expert care caster. Here's how I learned to do this. When I was about 19, I was in my second year of college. I just came out of a terrible relationship. This is before I met Jess. And I, I, I was making a life change. I felt like God was calling me away from my chosen path and dream I was going to be an English teacher, a track and field coach, and a novelist. And I clearly felt like the Lord was calling me to pastor. And so I made a change. I left that college. I went to a Bible college, broke up with this girl. And even though it was all good, it was, it was terrifying in a lot of ways. And I, I picked up a summer job working at the Pondere newsprint. It was a, a paper mill that made newspaper. And I worked 12-hour shift. It was shift work. The, the machine was so loud you had to wear earplugs, and I worked alone on the, the wet end of the machine. 
by myself all day long, 12 hours, zero human interaction, so loud, you, know, you have to scream to even get somebody's attention. And I was heartbroken, I was sad, I was afraid, and I was riddled with anxiety. But I was reading a book called Love is a Decision. And in this book, Love is a Decision, the author was talking about the, the lights on a dashboard and how when the check engine light goes off, I know some of you might just put a sticky note over it and keep driving as long as you can, but, but the wiser ones realize this light is telling me something about the condition of the car. And this author said that when we feel anxiety or insecurity or worry, it's telling us about the condition of our heart and it's telling us that my mind, my focus is not fixed on the promise and the person of Jesus. So this author suggested when those feelings come up, instead of panicking or sinking or just kind of soaking them in, you ever just wrapped up in a blanket of self-pity? It just feels so good for about five minutes until it strangles you. But he said, thank God for the, the bad emotion and let it reorient you. So here's what I started doing. I thought I may as well try it. I'm all by myself, 12 hours a day. I'm, I'm devastated anyway. And so I started doing this. When a fearful thought came up, is anybody ever gonna love me? I just got my heart broken. Will I ever meet someone? D does God have a future for me? Um, am I really called or did I just make the worst mistake of my life? When that emotion came up, I would pause and I would say, thank you. Thank you for showing me that my mind is not focused on you. I repent. I renounce that because that's contrary to you. You're greater than my fear. I'm not gonna make an idol out of this anxiety. You're a God and I receive your peace and the anxiety lifted for about 10 seconds. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll try it again. And I did it again. And I had plenty of time on my hands. And so I just practiced this all summer long. And for a while, I felt like I wasn't making a lot of progress. And, and then it got to a point where I realized, wow, the seconds have become minutes. And the minutes have turned to hours. And oh my God, I just worked a 12-hour shift and I was only anxious three times. And then I did meet Jessica and and things have changed, and those fears and those anxieties didn't come to pass. We have other ones now, but, but, we, have, but we have moved through those. You know what's funny about us humans is we can actually feel anxiety about the idea of not being anxious. I mean, shouldn't I worry? If I'm ignoring this issue, am I just putting my head in the sand? And No, you're trusting in a higher power. Um, we don't cast our cares on him so we can stop caring. We, we cast our cares on him so we can be whole and integrated so that we can care. See, when I'm fractured and divided, I am good for nothing. But when I'm centered and I'm anchored and I'm whole, um, then I can be at peace. Even if I'm living in the middle of a hurricane. Let me have the worship team or, or Jonathan, whoever's coming up, rejoin me. Does this making sense? Yes. Um, I asked Jonathan if, if he would lead us in just a couple times through an old worship song. <clears throat> this is an old song, and it's not the best song ever written. Um, you sang some much better ones earlier today. But there's some words in this song that say, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Any of you remember this song? So we used to sing it years and years ago, but the reason I want to sing it today is it comes from Psalm 57. It's a Psalm of David, and it shows up at the end of his Psalm. 
In Psalm 57:10, David says, great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. And if we read this verse in isolation, it just sounds cool. That's awesome. God, you're so good. And David had an understanding of that. But if we back up to the opening verse, it kind of blows your mind. Because in Psalm 57, verse one, David says, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. For in you, I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Another translation says, until these calamities have passed me by. So David was living in the middle of a hurricane. I'm living under the shadow of disaster. And yet, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the skies. You don't feel like his faithfulness is stretching to the skies when calamity is the shadow all around you. And yet somehow David was able to cast his cares instead of sinking under the weight of them. And he was able to to end with this incredible psalm, this incredible hymn, this incredible promise. So why don't you stand with me? And why don't we have a care casting moment? I know that in your liturgy, in your order of service, I think you move to communion after the message and we'll do that. But before we do that, let's just, let's just take that, ang- that anxiety, that, that thing that makes your pulse quicken a little bit, makes you a little worried, makes you a little nervous, fractures you a little bit. And let's just by faith say, Lord, until this calamity passes by, because it will, it will. And, and you probably won't get through it unscathed. Your life probably won't be as picture perfect as you always imagined, but but it will be better because God will have met you in an incredibly painful place. And so let's just sing this. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens.